Good morning, everybody. My name is George Stagg, lead pastor of the church here. We are in a great series on the book of Philippians, and the book of Philippians is a letter written by Paul to the church in Philippi about what it means to be one-minded as a church for the progress of the gospel and the advancement of the gospel. And I was reading this morning, the paper came, and I just opened it up to the front page, and, and there was uh, the third article in a series that the Tribune has been doing since the early summer about um, the decline in, in church attendance. And at this point, the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, outnumber, they said all of the population of, I believe, the mainline Protestant churches, it may have been all Protestant, but I think it's all mainline Protestant churches, those who do not affiliate uh, with any religion uh, in the U.S. are outnumbering what was at one point the largest uh, majority of, of persons in the, in the United States. And I was reading earlier this week, uh, Gallup did a uh, survey um, and noted in the survey that one of the leading indicators or leading um, factors in, in people living, leaving the church is uh, the quality of its leadership. And the, the message today is on leaders and the churches and why there is a need for there to be um, unity amongst leaders, but more so between the, the leaders like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, which are brought up who were brought up in this passage, and the church themselves. Now, if you remember from the first chapter, there's hints. There's hints of disunity uh, between Paul and between the church and Philippi. They had been a strong partnering church, um, but something led to some disunity present, some, some complaining and some grumbling, as we saw last week. And it seemed to be centered around Paul's imprisonment. You know, if, if, as a church, we were strongly supporting a leader who was out there, and all of a sudden, the leader is thrown in prison. And some in the church understand that this is a part of the gospel's work, and some say, you know, Paul is failing. And so it arose within this church, this huge conflict about the legitimacy of Paul and, and his ministry. And so we see here kind of uh, Paul increasingly... Uh, talking about the need for the church to be um, in a place of one-mindedness in unity with its leaders. And so you see that there's a couple paragraphs here. He's going to talk about Timothy, and he's going to talk about this man named Epaphroditus. Timothy was a young man that Paul pulled into the ministry at a young age in one of his early, his second missionary trip, and served with him. He's a single guy, young man when he came onto Paul's team, and, and had been a part of Paul's team for several years prior to this letter. Epaphroditus was a man from Philippi. And so in, these, in, these, in this short passage on these two men, we're going to see um, qualities that need to be present in leaders in order to strengthen the one-mindedness between leaders and churches. And we're going to see qualities that need to be present in churches in order for there to be one-mindedness in the progress of the gospel. And it's, and it's critical, it's important, the, the, this decline that we see in the states, in America, toward the nuns, towards people leaving churches. 
um, is, is something that we need to be concerned about. Not from the standpoint of, is God losing? Okay, or is the effect of Christ and the gospel and the Holy Spirit not effective these days? Um, what, what we see happening is, is um, yes, indeed, a decline in church participation and attendance. But what, what we're also seeing is that those who are holding to the faith are holding to it in a much more strong way. The people that are in are really in. And it's going to get rid of what Tim Keller called the squishy middle. We're not going to have people that are kind of Christian in name only. They're leaving. And one of the largest demographics of people leaving are the 20s and 30s. A lot of the people that are in this very church. And so if you are in the, your 20s and 30s and are part of this church and are growing in Christ and are strengthening in your commitment to each other and to Jesus and to the gospel and to the word, you are bucking the trend. You are bucking the trend. And we need to continue as a church to buck the trend. And so we're going to see some things in here. If we're going to see us as a church, if we're going to see Twin Cities Church continue on long-term for generations, okay, um, the vision for the gospel's progress needs to be uh, a generational thing. We want to be here for the long-term because that's what Jesus Christ has for us. So we're going to look at what does it take on, on the part of the leaders, and what does it take on the part of the church in order for there to be a, a one-mindedness so that the gospel continues to grow strong and expand from us. And so there's, we're going to look here at, at the leaders first. There's three things we see that the leaders need to be holding on to. First of all, uh, they need to seek Jesus' interests. Paul said, I have no one else like Timothy who seeks the interests of Christ, not just his own. We need to see that there is a concern for the welfare of the churches. So following up his statement about Timothy and his commitment to Christ, he said he has a genuine concern for the churches. And then he says, for you know how he has proven himself worthy of this ministry. So the first one, what does it mean to seek the interests of Jesus Christ as a minister? It's got to start out with a sincere love for hope in, and obedience to Jesus Christ. That's why the person is in the ministry. They love Jesus Christ. They have experienced his power in their lives, and they are overwhelmed by that power, and they, and they simply are compelled to serve him. Now, there's giftedness, there's giftedness as well. And as you see in Ephesians 4.11, there's the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. In terms of those, those men that are gifted and called to the work of ministry. And so when we talk about leaders, I'm talking about um, specifically here, those who are set aside where it is their vocational calling. He's talking about Paul. He's talking about Timothy. Epaphroditus is a little bit unclear, but Paul calls him a, a fellow soldier, a fellow worker, a fellow brother. So you get the sense that Epaphroditus has this, has this set-apart aspect to him as well. And there's a genuine concern for the churches. So not only has there been a, a real experience of Jesus Christ and his power in their lives and a reciprocal love for him. So it has to start with um, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. So the minister has to first and foremost love the Lord, the, the God of, of creation, the God of all time, the God of eternity, and has had to experience that. And then the second quality, to be genuinely concerned for the churches. 
And, and this is where you begin to see the sincerity of their devotion to Jesus Christ. What does it look like in real life? First of all, the church is not a means for self-actualization. What do I mean by that? Well, it has been the case, I think probably all time, for people to pursue the ministry because they're looking for a sense of purpose. They're looking for a sense of calling. They haven't, the purpose and calling hasn't come out of what Jesus has given them or called them to. It's like, okay, I don't know what to do with my life. I'm feeling kind of aimless. I'll pursue the ministry because that's a good thing. That's not what pulls you into the ministry. Those people should not be in the ministry. The second one, uh, you should not be in the ministry because you like to preach. I have heard many pastors, especially young men, talk about their work in the ministry because they like to preach. If you're called to be a preacher and you like to preach, that's great. If you're in the ministry because you like to preach, that's wrong. Basically, that just means you like to hear yourself talk. Okay. Now, it is not uncommon. Some of these things, it is not uncommon for all ministers that are truly called to go through some seasons of testing in their early years to weed out some of these ungodly, insincere characteristics. All right? There are elements of the ministry that can become heady and say, hey, you know, I like this. I'm good at this. People are saying good things about me. I like the praise. Whatever, okay? Those things are a part of all of our flesh, and they're going to be present in the flesh of those called to ministry. They need to be weeded out. Some people like to get into the ministry because they like to study. If you're called into the ministry and you enjoy studying, that's good. If you're in the ministry because you want to spend 36 hours a week or more studying, that's not good. And, and the thing about it is, the more, if you are called into the ministry and once you've been in the ministry, you'll find that the thing that gets squeezed out the most is study. So if you want to study, become a professor, not a minister of the gospel. Paul David Tripp in his book, Dangerous Calling, confronting the unique challenges of pastoral ministry, he says this, bad things happen when maturity is more defined by knowing than it is by being. Danger is afloat when you come to love the ideas more than the God whom they represent and the people that they are meant to free. When I was in my early years of ministry, so I, don't, I may have been 28, 30, somewhere around there, a friend of mine, Rich Klopp, some of you know him, he's about 10 years older than I am and been in the ministry longer than I had been at that time. And I, and I asked him, I had a, a process that I was in, and I asked him, he was one of my mentors, He's a church planner in Quebec, and now he's a, uh, now he's a whole host of things now, but he runs a nonprofit organization that drills wells and maintains wells in Central Africa Republic. He's a good man, um, loves Jesus, and really connects well with people. He knows people, and he told me this in his evaluation, so he wrote this. He said, George, you, you are a smart guy, but you need to grow in that your ideas need to serve people, not yourself. Now, I loved Rich. Rich loves me. That was stinging, but it was true. And it was that exactly this issue that Paul David Tripp spoke of. The motivation for a minister of the gospel can't be uh, the great experiences of learning that he has. It has to see 
the learning and the truth and the ideas come to serve the people that Jesus Christ has entrusted to them. You don't go into the ministry because you'd like to share the gospel with people. That's an aspect of the ministry, absolutely. But you'll find that once you are, if you're called to the ministry of the gospel, a lot of what happens in the context of a local church especially is that you are training and equipping others to be on the front lines of evangelization. I've shared the gospel less and less the more I get into the ministry of the church because I'm just not around non-Christians as much as you all are. There are times when I wish I could just, I'm going to dump this church stuff and so I can spend more time with non-Christians. But I feel like that would be a rejection of what God has called me to. He's called me to train and equip the church for the work of the ministry. And so that can, that's, a good, that's a good calling, an evangelist, and it's an aspect of what it means to be called into the ministry. But it, again, these singular things can't be all of what defines the ministry. The church is not a means of getting rich. You see, increasingly... Um, just in the last uh, couple of years, more and more church leaders who are undermining their ministry uh, because of their huge salaries and then complaints and criticisms and church debt that comes into to focus because of a, such a revolving concern around money and income and salaries. That's not where you get rich. If you want to get rich, if you want to make a lot of money, pursue business. And then as you make a lot of money, give it away, and you'll be even more rich, Jesus says. The church is not a platform, David Tripp also says. Perhaps in ministry there is no more potent intoxicant than the praise of men. And there is no more dangerous form of drunkenness than to be drunk with your own glory. A pastor I used to listen to in my early days... Um, can't even remember his name at this point, but I listened to a lot of his tapes. <laughs> this is back when they used tapes. There was no CDs, no MP3 players. That little Sony Walkman that I ran with. He says the ministry can be a very heady thing. If that becomes your motivation and your calling, you're, gonna, you're on a crash course. It has to be... For the, the, the true concern for the minister of the gospel is the work of the gospel in people's lives. And love and service have to characterize their lifestyle. I remember when I was 16, 17 years old. Maybe I was 18. I can't remember. It was a summer before I went to college. 17. It's when I felt this urge of God in my life to pursue vocational ministry. It was a fight at first, and I've told this story before, um, and what finally pushed me over the edge was, I mean, I, you guys, I, we had not, I, I did not grow up in the church, all right? My understanding of being called to the ministry at that time was, was one, a pastor, which I had no interest in at all. The second thing um, was like a, a speaker at conferences like Josh McDowell because that's, you know, that's where I was getting tapes and that's what I had seen and heard. I had no idea what it meant to be a minister of the gospel. I didn't, we didn't join a church until I was 16 years old. Um, so I, I just didn't know what that meant. But my, my friends were encouraging it. The leaders in my life were encouraging it. I, I, but I just, you know, I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. That's what I wanted to do. And it was a battle. 
But the thing that finally pushed me over the edge, and it's, it's, it, this has been increasingly significant, the older I've become and the more trials I've experienced in the ministry, what pushed me over the edge was that I saw the gospel transform people. And I could not believe it. I could not believe it. And there have been seasons where I've gotten away from that, where my preaching or my study or my scholarship or my position was a significant and maybe even the most prominent motivation. And thankfully, God has brought me through seasons of discipline and correction and has consistently brought me back to this place where I'm in this because of people. And, and it is so cool and amazing and otherworldly to see what the gospel is doing in the lives of people. Phil, the post you've been putting up on the realm and your testimony last year at Christmas, I still talk to people about that. Um, others, like uh, the um, um, Tyler and Katie last week or two weeks ago, uh, and their story about how the Sheridan House Church has helped them. You guys, those, are, those stories to me are gold. That is, that is why a minister of the gospel must be a minister of the gospel, for those things. If there's anything else different motivating the minister of the gospel, um, it's, he's on a crash course, or she's on a crash course. And they're, they're the, the third point, so they've, they've got to love Jesus Christ, and they have to have a real experience with Jesus Christ. They have to be in service to his people. And they're, they're, they need to prove their worth in service and in fruitfulness. You should see a result of their work in the ministry. Okay, Paul said, you know Timothy's worth. So the Philippian church knew enough about Timothy to say, yeah, you know what? He's proven himself. He is concerned about us as a church. We do see fruit um, in his life and in the life of the people he's ministering to. There should be some progress in the gospel uh, in him and through him. And so that in inevitably means that you're going to, you know, in, in, in the pastorals, Paul says to, to Timothy, your progress should be evident to all. And so here he's saying to the Philippian church, you know his progress, which means inherently you as a church are, have seen and are going to continue to see weakness in the life of your leader, all right? Paul's not holding up himself. In fact, he says, I'm the, I'm the worst of all sinners. And next chapter, chapter 3, next week's sermon, he's going to say, I have not yet achieved God's complete calling upon my life, but I continue to pursue it. You are going to see weaknesses in us as your leaders. Absolutely. All right? And if you spend any time around us at all, those weaknesses are going to be really apparent. All right? That there's weaknesses there shouldn't be a surprise. What you should see is some progress. If you don't see progress, then that's alarming, okay? If you don't see growth in gentleness, if you don't see growth in love, if you don't see growth in putting off of sin, if you don't see growth in self-discipline, if you don't see growth in their skills, okay, you should see skill development as well, right? So there's, that there's progress is, an, is, is what you need to be looking for when you evaluate and, and understand your leaders. So what does it mean for God's people to support and to be one-minded? So we've seen the minister or the leader needs to be, they need to love Jesus. They need to love Jesus' people. 
uh, and they sh- their, their fruit, the gospel, should be evident in their lives and in their ministry. So the people are called to trust, to receive, and to honor. To trust, receive, and honor. So what does it mean to trust? Now, Paul says here, now remember, this is, you know, when you read through Philippians, and if you read a lot of commentaries on it, you're going to come away with it. Philippians is all about joy, and Paul is excited about their partnership. You know, he's got to write about their partnership, and he's got to encourage and admonish them to grow deeper in their partnership and to grow deeper in their joy because some things are beginning to erode that. Leon Cass has said that, he said, God never wasted a command. So the commands are here because it's dealing with problems that exist. Paul says, I have have to send you Epaphroditus. It's not Epaphroditus is returning to you. It's I am sending. Okay, and the word there is mission. I I have a mission for Epaphroditus. I have a task for him now. It's necessary for him to come back. So we have to ask the question, why is Paul sending? Why is Epaphroditus not just returning? And then he kind of has this over-the-top affirmation of Epaphroditus. There's five descriptions that he uses of Epaphroditus, and you ask yourself, and it's the, it's the most lengthy affirmation of any of Paul's co-workers. Why would he have to affirm Epaphroditus so much? And generally, when you have to affirm, it's because there's a need to affirm. So there seems to be, although Epaphroditus was one of them, something that is unsettling in the relationship between Epaphroditus and the Philippian church. And then the last verse, you can kind of see it. I am sending him to you, receive him well, and honor such men, for he is making up what was lacking in your sacrifice and commitment to me. So it seems like, and I don't have time to get into all of the details, but I'm just bringing up the fact that there's, there's some dynamic here with Epaphroditus and the Philippian church and Paul where, where Paul seems to think that he's got to mend some fences and strengthen and affirm Epaphroditus. If Epaphroditus is one of them, why would, why would he have to be so strong in receive him as the Lord and with joy, respect and honor him and all such men? It seems like Epaphroditus may have seen the conflict in the church related to their distrust of Paul or maybe their their lack of of confidence in Paul. And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to abandon Paul while we're sitting around here grumbling and arguing about whether Paul's ministry is valid or not. I'm going to take off on my own, and I'm going to go see Paul, and I'm going to make up what is lacking from this church. And it seems like, and we're going to get into this when we get to chapter 4, but, but evidently, they had financially supported Paul since the first day, Lydia. And it stopped. It stopped. And that's brought up in chapter 4. And that stopping, I mean, Paul says, listen, I've learned how to be content in everything. And he's specifically talking about, I've learned how to be content when the churches are generously supporting me or when the churches are not generously supporting me. I'm thankful for your gift, but I've been content. I can make it. But something paused their support of him, and it affected him because he was in need. 
And it seems like Epaphroditus just took a step forward and says, you know what, I'm not going to wait for this church and its leadership to figure things out. I've been a co-worker of Paul's. He's a friend of mine. I'm going to go. All right, so some would have been supportive of Epaphroditus and some would have been hesitant of Epaphroditus. And then on the way, he gets sick. Okay, now, Paul's in jail, and then this guy's on his own mission, and he's going to fail because he's sick. Now, it says that Epaphroditus was distressed because the church heard that he was sick. It doesn't say that the church was distressed because they heard Epaphroditus was sick. It just says Epaphroditus was distressed because he knew the church knew he was sick. So he could have had all sorts of insecurities. I stepped out on my own to help Paul, and they're going to think that I've failed in this mission just like Paul's failing in his mission. Paul says, I want you to know that he's doing fine. I want you to see him face to face so that you could rejoice, and I would be saved from sorrow upon sorrow, which means that there's a sorrow already present reflected in his anxiety, and there's something that's going to add to that. What's Paul's, what's Paul's sorrow and anxiety right now? The disunity of the Philippian church. And so Epaphroditus getting sick and dying would be a personal injury to Paul because he's a close friend, but it would add to this disunity in the Philippian church that already exists. And so what Paul is saying here to the Philippian church is, is, is listen, Epaphroditus fulfilled an obligation that you as a church had to me. And in the midst of your grumbling and complaining, he stepped in and met a need. So get over the grumbling and complaining. Get over your criticisms of me and get over your criticisms of Epaphroditus. You need to receive him as if you were receiving the Lord, which means welcome him with great open arms of hospitality. And you need to honor him, which means you need to hold him up. Now, this idea of honoring and respecting, it's all over the scriptures. All people under authority are to respect and hold up those who are in authority. Not because they are the people in authority or the people that they are to honor and respect are, are of a higher value or are better. And when, and when Paul says in, in chapter 2, think of others as better than yourself, it's the same idea. When we think of others as better than ourselves, we're less likely to be critical. We're less likely to be disrespectful. We're going to put ourselves kind of in the service of that person. That's what it, it means to kind of hold somebody up. So he's saying, honor and respect Epaphroditus. Don't be critical of him. Don't undermine him. Don't question him, okay, from a disrespect standpoint. Think of him as higher than you. And that, and that will take away criticism, because if I think somebody is better than me, then I, I'm thinking that my ideas or opinions aren't quite as good, my concerns aren't quite as important. All right, now, Paul's not saying that when you are in a place of honoring and holding up people that your ideas aren't important. All right? He's not saying that, that you can't have any sort of questioning okay, of those who are in authority. It puts you into a place, though, and this, you have to see the positive side of what he's saying. He's calling us to be in a place where we are oriented to serve and help. And it's not just for those who are in places of authority. 
it is, he's calling the entire church to that way of life in chapter 2. If, if there is any love, any compassion, any sympathy, then put the interests of others on the same level as your own and think of others as more important than you. And it seems like in order for us to, to be concerned about others' interests as much as we are concerned about our own, we have to think better of them. Because our own needs are always present, right? They're always present. We can't get away from them. Our households are dependent upon us being concerned about our own interests. But we're not likely to move outside of our own spheres of interest unless we think of others as better. And we're like, okay, I, I've got to make sure I'm meeting these outside needs because they are more important than me. And unless we think that way, I don't, we don't get out of our own selves and so he's saying to trust and to receive and honor Epaphroditus trust and honor and and he says as well as all other men like these for he has given their life life for the sake of the gospel and for your own welfare now Paul expects the church to respond positively to Timothy, and to Epaphroditus. Now, here's, here's what you always have kind of, I mean, the, the, the commentaries, and this is a significant part of it, because Paul's going to say next chapter, look to us as examples. These are, these are passages written to provide some example, but if you think about it, if you're kind of as a church at a little bit of odds with Paul, and then Paul says, hey, I'm sending two guys to you. There's going to be some motivation. He did this to the Corinthians too. They, were, they didn't fulfill some commitments that they had made to him. And he's saying, I'm sending three guys, three guys, to make sure you meet your commitments. And so, so Paul has just this beautifully gifted way of writing in such a way that puts a great deal of weight on his requests, but he does it in a way to where he, he, he's so gracious, and he makes you feel like, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to meet those requests, even though he's sending his heavies to make sure I do it. And so this burden is there. They're going to sense the burden because two guys are coming. And he's called me to honor and respect them. And see, what? Well, here's the deal. If they don't, if they don't, the progress of the gospel begins to get affected. If Paul's not getting support from outside help and he's in jail, what's going to happen to him? When he was in Rome imprisonment, he was confined to his own house that he rented. Well, Paul wasn't conducting his leather trade when he was in house arrest in Rome. He was supported by outside sources, by churches and benefactors, so that he was able, then able to write and to speak and to preach and to continue to encourage the churches. Leaders of church networks and of local churches are dependent upon the people for their material support and for their continued pressing of the gospel into the spheres of their own lives. The, 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 the spread of the gospel breaks down and the strength of the churches break down 
if the, if the mutually honoring relationship between the leaders and the churches fail. Uh, Ralph Winter wrote an article called The Two Structures of God's Redemptive Mission. And it's a historical article. And those of you that are in the leaders class that Craig Butler is leading right now, it's the first article in that course. And the article says this, and it's a, again, it's a historical overview, not a theological argument. But what he says is history has shown that when the church as a whole, or pockets of the church globally, have heavily emphasized the role of the local church to the detriment of leaders, the, the gospel has been weakened and the gospel's advance has decreased. He says when the church as a whole has heavily emphasized the role of these prominent leaders and de-emphasized the work of the local church, the gospel fails to expand and be strengthened in its place. There has to be this mutually honoring and mutually supporting relationship between leaders and churches. And if that honoring mutual relationship ever breaks down, the gospel's strength, okay, so Paul says, in my defense of and affirmation or confirmation of the gospel, there's a, the gospel has to, has to strengthen our lives, and the gospel has to continue to advance. If the relationship between leaders and churches breaks down, the strength of the gospel's presence in culture weakens, which is where we're at now in the U.S., and the advance of the gospel weakens, which is where we're at in the U.S. And so, the gospel, Jesus calls us to unity in these things. Calls us to unity in these things. So I just want to just, how are, how are we ad advancing the gospel as a church? Well, we are equipping and supporting those that are going into jails, treatment programs, sober houses, and discipleship homes. As the gospel is continuing to go forth on a daily basis. Okay? There's a lot of evangelism a lot of gospel efforts going forth into all of these various aspects where people are studying and reading the Bible for the first time, uh, people are being confronted with the gospel in a, in a truthful way for the first time. Joel and, and John and Tim and Seth and other co-workers with those guys. You guys, the gospel is pressing into those. People are coming to know Jesus Christ. People are f discovering Christ for the first time. They're understanding what it means for a, a, somebody to be a, a, a disciple of Jesus Christ for the first time. Breakthroughs are happening. It is a significant aspect of us as a church moving the gospel into places where it is very dark. We support Acts 29, and Acts 29 is a very specific mission to take the gospel into places in the world where there is no gospel. Okay, so we send 1% of our giving to Acts 29. That's the requirement of being in the network. And then we have personal relationships and conversations that I trust, and from my testimony and what, from what I hear in our house churches, you all are striving to take the gospel into the lives of the people around you. How are we defending it? Well, we continue to preach and teach and shepherd and counsel against threats to the gospel and the life of the Christian. Political syncretism, we've avoided. Redefinitions of sexuality and marriage, we've been strong on. We haven't avoided these cultural issues. We've talked about them, we preach them, we teach them, we shepherd th through them, we're gracious but truthful. A lot of churches don't address these 
cultural things. We are strong against licentious, which means you kind of throw out the law, and legalistic, which means like the law is what your source of righteousness is. We've, we strongly push against both of those. We strengthen others in their own contexts. Our work in Mozambique, I mean, I, I, there are several of these things where we need to do a lot more reporting about. Our work in Mozambique, um, if you're familiar, if you grew up in a Lutheran church, any of you ever read Luther's small catechism, either in history class or in the, as Lutheran catechism? If you were the, remember the beginning of it, Paul, not Paul, Martin Luther was given a task by the prince of Germany, some government official, go and evaluate all of the churches in this province that you're in, in Germany. So he came back and he's writing up this report. And he says this, he says, Good God, what wretchedness I beheld. And so when the first time I went into Mozambique, I could not believe the quality of the leaders, not from the standpoint of being amazed and surprised by how great it was. It was... Um, these men can't explain some of the most basic passages of Scripture and the gospel. Like, there's 2,000 churches in the network, and these men represent their best leaders. And I'm not saying this because of some need to say we're so needed. Jesus brought us into this. But it's meeting a need. And I hope to see that the generations to come are going to be subsequently and, and much better stronger because of of our of our meager efforts to train these these dozen men hopefully it just spreads we have more churches in the u.s using our written materials myanmar portugal mozambique got a request this week for india being translated i have no idea how many copies get made we have no control over them we don't charge anything they just get used if they're in the u.s they buy them off amazon and they just go we couldn't do any of these things we couldn't do our work in the jails Treatment centers, discipleship homes, sober living houses, which is kind of another new thing. We couldn't do the work in Mozambique. We can do the work here. We can do the work in Portugal. None of it would occur without the generous support of this local church. You guys have been extremely supportive, extremely one-minded, extremely generous. And it's been really encouraging for us. But you, you all need to know that as we grow... The opportunities will grow, but the, the importance of us remaining one-minded is going to increasingly grow. So that's the challenge to the church. Staying one-minded and trusting of its leaders as we continue to take opportunities and lead as the, sport, as the Spirit leads um, in the midst of seeing our mistakes, seeing our weaknesses, seeing our challenges, but hopefully seeing some progress. And then for us as leaders, we're going to have to pay attention and realize that suffering is going to be present as we continue to expand the gospel. And who knows where this is going to lead in the future? 10 years from now, 15 years from now, where will our culture be in regard to the faith? You know, in Europe, things are ahead of us in terms of the pressure of the government on churches and on proclamations of the gospel and in some countries there are passages of scripture that it is illegal to teach from because of what they say about certain issues it's not that way here in the states yet but will we go there you know so we as leaders have to be ready for the suffering that is to come all right and thankfully we don't we don't have a lot of suffering in the, the type of they talk about here in the new testament 
J. Oswald Sanders says, Serving and suffering are paired in the teaching and life of our Lord. One does not come without the other, and what servant is greater than the Lord? And so all of us, whether we're leaders or whether we're the non-leaders, the church, all of us is the church. We're, we're called to, to trust. We're called to suffer. And really it's a call to the very gospel that Paul has already said. Listen, we've got to be like Jesus Christ. We've got to be like Jesus. We've got to put the interests of others before us. If we're not in this because of Jesus we shouldn't be in this. If you're not in the church because of Jesus, then you need to strongly consider Jesus. Stay in the church. Because this is where you're going to learn about Jesus. You need to know that he is life. And whatever vision of life you have out there, it's going to fail you because Jesus is the only one that can provide the fulfillment you're longing for. Sex will not fulfill you. Food will not fulfill you. Money, pleasure, security. None of these things will fulfill you because eventually they will fail you. They will fail you. And that all of those failures are a means through which God is trying to say, listen, come to know me, Jesus Christ, and it's, gonna, it's, it's of the Spirit. <laughs> it, it is the promise that God will give you a sense of his filling in your spirit joy contentment and peace in the midst of suffering you guys that is what we're all called to whether we're leaders whether we're in the church that is what we're called to the gospel the gospel then we will find life then we will find life let me pray